As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast trying to make sense of the media landscape. And today we're talking about the function of criticism. Do we need writers regulating our entertainment intake? I'm Mark Linton-Meyer, and I've brought a PowerPoint with charts and graphs to demonstrably prove that everything you enjoy is filthy and disgusting. I'm Erica Spires, and I had this conversation on vinyl. And I'm Brian Hurt, and I hope everyone else binged all 23 episodes of the mid-90s classic show, The Critic, with John Lovitz, because that's the only thing I did to prepare. And that's all I'm going to talk about tonight. <laughs> and our guest today is... Hi, I'm Noah Berlatsky. I'm a critic, and therefore I have no witty intro. <laughs> you have so much witticism spread over the pages that we looked at to prepare for and to invite you. So I think the reason I reached out to you is because your articles just organically came up in the context of multiple previous discussions. So that's kind of the criteria. Anybody whose name keeps coming up, and I think it was your curmudgeonliness that we appreciated. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm more able to be curmudgeonly on paper. I'm not as quick and on the podcast, but we'll do the best we can. You were nice enough to point us out, and we will point the listeners to several articles on that you've actually written about criticism. We'd started talking about like, huh, maybe you should come on our Scorsese podcast. And you were like, I don't like Scorsese. <laughs> and, uh, well, maybe uh, you should talk about war films. Well, I wrote about 1917. I didn't like that. Maybe we should just talk about criticism itself. Do you want to kind of throw out the first pitch in terms of if you're just asked, what is the function of criticism? What is the point? Why should people like you be allowed to live? <laughs> There are a couple answers to why criticism I guess the sort of less theoretical one is that criticism is an art form. It's been an art form for, you know, like longer than film. Lots of artists engage in criticism. Criticism is generally taught in schools. And, you know, I mean, it's conceived of in much the way we conceive of other art. So why do we need criticism is the same answer to like, why do we need movies? It's because it's one aesthetic way that people communicate with each other. I think I understand, but could you talk a little bit more about how it's an art form? Because I don't think I've, I've thought of it in those terms before. Like, I might think that your critical article is written artfully from the sake of a writer, but that criticism itself is an art form. It's, it gave me a little pause. Or just as an image to, that you can counter, I recall History of the World Part One, the Mel Brooks film, where the first art is the guy drawing the cave painting, and the first critic comes along is the guy who pisses on the cave painting. <laughs> Pissing on a cave painting would be totally reasonable conceptual art, right? These days. <laughs> yeah. That's art. And in fact, you know, like that was in a Mel Brooks film, right? I mean, which is criticism of critics. You're talking about an aesthetic object. 
you could argue that like not all criticism is art the same way that like not all writing or not all drawing is art right i mean you can get like drawings in a powerpoint and like is that art the same way you know like Yelp reviews, you know, people would be like, well, that's not exactly art. But I mean, you know, like maybe my favorite piece of criticism is James Baldwin's book length essay, The Devil Finds Work, which is a long sort of memoir about his viewing movies, basically, which starts with like some Joan Crawford films and then ends with his amazing analysis of The Exorcist, which is like far superior to The Exorcist. I mean, I like The Exorcist, but James Baldwin is better than The Exorcist. It's like pretty straightforward. I think people pretty much agree that writing is an art. Like nonfiction writing is an art. And yeah, there's just lots of criticism, which, you know, is in the canon. Mark Twain, James Fenimore Cooper, for example. Have people read that? Oh, yeah, that's it's amazing. Good stuff. Yeah, it's so funny. What does he say? Fenimore Cooper sees as through a glass eye darkly. You know, it's fantastic. <laughs> or um, Jane Austen, like Northanger Abbey. Some of the best parts are sort of like her criticism of gothic novels where she makes the case for gothic novels as being worthwhile or for novels as being worthwhile. And I think there's just a lot of examples like that. Certainly it provides a historical context the way almost nothing else does. Contemporaneous criticisms of things looking at famously in science fiction, H.G. Wells criticizes the movie Metropolis. It's such a look into his mind as well as what that thing was. And it's hard to look at something in a modern lens and really try to feel like how that might have been perceived at the time. And certainly by a luminary like that, there's nothing that quite replaces that. The second reason that you'd say that criticism is important, I mean, if you care about art, is because criticism is the thing like which defines what art is. Like people often talk about criticism as being like parasitic on art, that you have the art and then the critic comes along and, you know, the critic wouldn't exist without the art. But it's really the other way around. To define art is an act of criticism, right? I mean, like, we use criticism to decide that, like, this piece of writing is art and this piece isn't. But, like, Wallace Stevens' poems are art, but, like, his laundry lists are not art. You know, I mean, you have to make that critical judgment. And you sort of see that in where people will say, well, this whole art form isn't art. You know, like, video games aren't art, or memes aren't art, or, you know, at one point, novels aren't art, you know, or... These plays by Shakespeare aren't art is something that some contemporary sort of thought or said. There's this act of deciding that you're going to think about something as art, and that's a critical act. So, you know, you really don't have sort of what we think of as art without this critical function. I just want to know, what do you feel about Martin Scorsese talking about Marvel films as not being cinema, since you're not a fan of Martin Scorsese? Oh, or Marvel. <laughs> see, I'm not right. I'm not a fan of Martin Scorsese or Marvel. I mean, I would say that Marvel films are art. They're just kind of like not very good art. <laughs> we should explain that you've put a lot of time into giving serious critical reflection on comics. So it's not like you're just a snooty academic or something. Sure. And I like the Twilight novels, for example. I like them better than Marvel films or Martin Scorsese. Really? Oh, yeah, absolutely. She's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is interesting. Okay. I especially like, I could talk about that for a while. I'm especially a fan of like the uh, short life of Brie Tanner. She sort of takes a minor character from the novels, Brie Tanner, who gets turned into a vampire and dies. I mean, like that's all that happens in the novel is she just gets staked. That's all that happens in like the main series. But then she goes back and like talks about who she is and what brings her up to getting killed. And it's just a really kind of amazing way to like talk about who gets to have moral standing in these monster stories, whose death doesn't matter, which I think speaks to 
how genocides happen because you decide that killing certain people is moral and the more of them you kill is the more moral. And that's the logic of genocide. But if you like give those people moral standing, suddenly a lot of your ideas about who's the good guys and who's the bad guys and what that means and a lot of genre fiction switches around. So I think she does fascinating things with genre. Sparkly vampires. That's really weird. She sort of turns the vampires into these like elves, which I think is really cool. There's a critic who writes about television and talks about how genres form, which I think is also a lot about how art gets made. Like, how do you decide what's art? Critics can say, well, this is art and this isn't art. But like everybody kind of gets to be in on that critical act of like deciding what the culture decides is art. There's just so much film criticism. And we've decided long ago that movies are art. There's so much criticism that takes those Marvel films as aesthetic objects. But like, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me to not call them not art, though, you know, many of them are not good art. Right. Isn't that a really important distinction, Noah, between something that's lousy art and not worth calling art? I remember when Siskel and Ebert, back in the day on their show, would talk about the worst movies of the year. It was never really the actual worst movies, like just garbage. It was always bad movies from people who should have known better. So good movie makers making bad movies, in their minds, that was worth singling out as bad art. Whereas someone who, to call a Wiseau's The Room bad is almost, well, in that heck, she took on a life of its own. But some of these things, he was a hack who didn't know what he was doing. It's almost not worth calling it bad art. Whereas something like Cats from an Oscar-winning director, I think King's Speech won for uh, Hooper. I don't know if he himself won, and a bunch of big-name actors. Like, that's totally fair game. And that, I didn't see it, so I don't want to actually judge it. But were you a fan of the Cats, the movie, the musical? I mean, it's kind of amazing. (laughs) Yeah, I would say I'm a fan. I went with my son, and I like he liked it even more. He was just blown away. He was like, this is hideous in the best possible way. Yeah, he was super excited. I like Cats more than Marvel films. It's really worth being weird and bad rather than just kind of more middle of the road. I'd rather see something that sort of is spectacularly odd and repulsive. Flamingly horrible. The person who I was thinking about who talks about how everybody gets to contribute to what genres are is Jason Mattel. And I was also talking about Carl Friedman, who's a science fiction critic, who's the one who sort of talks about how Wall Stevens's laundry lists aren't art. That's kind of the distinction between like not art and bad art that I'd make. It's like actually a genre distinction. Like it's not really a quality issue. Art's good and bad, but there's stuff that like we really don't think about as art. It's okay then. I mean, it might be okay or not okay, but you're not thinking about the aesthetic meaning of laundry list, right? I mean, PowerPoint presentations are kind of like, yeah, because you like, you might look at that and say that is really ugly and boring, which are things you'd say about art or advertisements are sort of on the line. Sometimes you think of them as art maybe. And then But most of the time, they're considered to have a different purpose, and you don't really think of them aesthetically. There's a great science fiction series called, I think, The White Queen, where she has a riff where they're they're showing Coke bottles in a museum in the future, and she talks about how they're now art, and great anonymous like people who created packaging, basically, and how those are now accepted as art. I thought that was pretty great. See, now you're just making me think of The Gods Must Be Crazy which was one of my favorite movies as a kid. 
a classically terrible movie. <laughs> like, a, it's a wonderful idea, but like the actual execution, I remember, I think Brian and I saw that together as teenagers and like, this is terrifically bad movie making. But <laughs> like, as a child, I thought it was fantastic and we watched it a lot. <laughs> So, you know, it depends on your audience, right? I mean, I quite liked it when I was younger. I thought it was pretty good slapstick. It's kind of really racist is the problem. Yeah, it is. I've noticed a lot of your negative reviews, you know, why you didn't like 1917 or why you didn't like some of these other things are on ideological grounds. It's not so much that you're saying that the movie making was sloppy or the dialogue was bad or any of these kind of... But given that we have certain expectations for a certain level of quality in those things, right? If you're Tommy Wiseau, as Brian was saying, the making the room, you're playing a different game. But if you've got the minimal competence for that kind of stuff, then it's what are the ideas that you're peddling in here? And that's why I feel like even if you're talking about critical works as works of art, a lot of those are not so much criticizing other works of art as criticizing society itself, right? Of course, some of our greatest works of art are criticizing society itself. And so is it True that your favorite works of criticism that you've written, that other people have written, are also social commentaries. They're not merely just saying this is a tired art form and we should, that's less interesting than to say, well, in this case, to uncover the racism that's in (laughs) so many of these things or just the assumptions that haven't been really fully thought out. Yeah, I mean, it really depends, you know, as with all art, (laughs) it sort of depends. Mark Twain's Fenimore Cooper piece isn't really ideological exactly right. It's more making fun of him for being unable to make sense at sort of like a sentence level. It also is kind of ideological in that it's about why romanticism is bad from his perspective, right? I mean, he's sort of criticizing Cooper's romanticism on realist ground, that he sees himself as a realist writer, and Cooper is this romantic who's like full of nonsense. I mean, for the 1917 piece that I wrote, for me, generally, like formal issues and ideological issues are not super separable because like in 1917 the thing i really disliked about the movie is the way that it's formal control like to me betrayed the material right i mean it's like supposed to be this incredible formally controlled virtuoso imagery and you know world war one was like this huge clusterfuck right i mean it was like this chaotic disaster that had no point and the thing i think about is that scene which was like the most canonical scene already, I guess, which they show a bit of in the trailer where he's running parallel to the trench while people come out of it. It's like this film long shot, this very impressive shot of him showing his individualism and the individualism of the film, right? Because he's running against all these other people coming out at the same time. You're supposed to gasp at the director and the cinematographer. So it turns this, incredible dehumanizing machine, which is what World War One was, into this formal celebration of individual heroism. So it's the conjunction, it's the form and the content, and the way they fit together, that really put me off. If it were crappier, like if it looked like a TV movie, it would be better. It would be less repulsive. I know you had compared that to a scene of Wonder Woman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's that scene in Wonder Woman where she's coming over the top, And it's beautifully shot. She's, like, coming right for you. You know, it's Gal Gadot, who's, like, you know, stunning, and it's, like, stunningly composed. It is a similar kind of thing where they've turned this incredibly, like, dehumanizing, awful bloodbath into this celebration of individuality. I liked Wonder Woman better than I liked 1917, because there were other things in it besides turning World War I into that, like, cute flirting scene. 
The things that are more like Twilight. The elements that are like Twilight are the, <laughs> the ones. I like romance, you know. What can I say? Is something going to get you more on board with it if you're surprised by it? As opposed to it's predictable and you don't like how they're approaching something? Like I said, I like the bizarreness of Twilight. The way that it messes with genre. And so there's kind of like weird things you're not expecting. Like vampire baseball. These like bizarre, where did she come up with that? But, you know, I mean, it doesn't like, you know, genre, which is kind of just kind of done well, can be pretty fun too, like Knives Out. That's like, that's not my favorite film or anything, but it was very clever in the way that it did the mystery. It had like political commentary, which was kind of thoughtful and well integrated. And the acting was fun. So with 1917, I didn't think I was going to like it and I didn't want to see it. And then I loved it, which made me love it more because it was unexpected. Because I feel like what you see with World War One and World War Two films and Vietnam films, like it's so similar within the genre that this one to me broke that. So the fact that it wasn't a dark, gritty mess, as you seem to have wanted to have been, was the thing that Erica liked about it. While I see the similarity that you point out between that scene and the Wonder Woman scene, I also feel like, no, actually, there were people like plowing into him and he falls down a couple times and they're like, it was way messier. Like, the thing is much more of a frenetic, it's not actually shaky cam, which seems to be maybe what you would have preferred, but I'm getting a similar effect. I was saying I would have liked it to just like look like crap, like a bland television movie where like, you know, it's just the visuals just aren't that impressive. What I'm trying to come to terms with, Noah, is criticizing something for not succeeding in what it's trying to do and just not liking what it's trying to do. Like, I feel like Sam Mendes is trying to make the statement about individual heroism and is succeeding at it, and you're not having any of it. Exactly. So it's not like he has failed to give you the experience you want, but he has succeeded in giving you the experience he wants you to have. Sure. I mean, I think criticizing people's intention is totally fair. I mean, Birth of a Nation does really well at being racist. It intends to be racist. It's really successful. It, like, really successfully portrays Black people as being the real cause of dissension between the North and the South. It's got beautifully composed shots of, like, genocide, which effectively make its audience cheer for, like, murdering Black people. You know, so it's really effective. Is it a good movie? No! <laughs> no, it's evil! It's, like, a bad film which has bad intentions. Giving a limit case like that certainly makes the distinction clear. But it does seem like it's not just the purely ideological critiques, but that what the artist is trying to do, I think, Brian, correct me if I'm wrong, seems to determine and what language game is what I want to say, but, but what art game is being played. It might be interesting. So one of your other articles is why you should compare apples and oranges. It might be interesting creating an article that tries to evaluate a piece of music or a film or something from a totally foreign perspective might be an interesting juxtaposition, but it hardly serves to, like, if what comes out of that is, wow, I really hate this film because it was not working well with this foreign juxtaposition. <laughs> it was not cast in a positive light given that. Seems hasty. You know, art isn't people. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, like, you don't, like, owe it a fair trial, necessarily. You know, I mean, it's art. You react to it the way you react to it. And, you know, I try to figure out something that I'm interested in talking about. Is this a good example of this style? Or, like, do they succeed at doing what they're trying to do? You know, like, I like slashers. So, like, when I watch those, I'm kind of like, how do they play with the format? Are they 
doing well with the genre. But I'm like, you know, I'm often like more interested in what's it saying about the genre or what juxtaposition is it making or does it have anything to say or or not? I kind of need there to be more than just a genre exercise, probably if I'm going to love it. If somebody's interested in just saying this works in the way the creator wanted it to work, that's fine. Or if they're kind of more interested in saying, well, this was trying to do X and doing X is a shitty thing to be doing, that's fine too. I don't know if you are as big a consumer of criticism since you are a creator of one. Maybe you you do. I, I know I do quite a bit. And I find it is really helpful after I've watching a movie in particular. And if I watched it by myself and I don't have someone to bounce ideas off of, I'll go read reviews. And it always is. It's good to know as a starting point, if I was imagining things like, gosh, was this movie trying to do that? Or is that something I am overlaying? I just watched Midsummer. Oh, yeah, yeah. Ari Aster. That was great. And I really, really liked it. And I usually don't know if I really like something until about 24 hours from when I watched it. And if I've been thinking about it for those last 24 hours, then it usually means that maybe I liked it, but certainly it moved me in some way. But after I watched it, I was thinking to myself, man, that was really so much better than Hereditary for a lot of reasons. I have not seen Hereditary, so I can't compare Okay. The review I read was on AV Club. I don't remember who wrote it. Kind of touched on all the things that I would have liked to talk to with someone who had seen both of those movies as well. And I didn't agree with everything. And there were some comments. I mean, I don't really know the whole history of the pastoral horror genre. I mean, I think it goes back to the 70s. And Mark, I don't think we were renting those movies in our teen years together. So who knows? No, I didn't see Wicker Man until I was an adult. Okay. So (laughs) anyway, Midsummer. Which one? Which Wicker Man? I saw the old Wicker Man second. I saw the new Wicker Man first. I think it's a very natural reaction to sort of, I mean, you know, arts communication, right? I mean, it's a way of like talking to people. I mean, one of the reasons there is criticism, that people write criticism or read criticism, is the same reason you talk to somebody about the art you've seen. It's like, well, what ideas did these bring up? What do you think about this art? What do you think about how it relates to other art? You know, and actually, I mean, like, what Midsummer made me do is I went back and watched Wicker Man, which is, like, much the same thing as going to, like, read criticism. Midsummer, in a lot of ways, is a commentary and a rearranging of what happens in Wicker Man and watching them together. Yeah, there's a lot of, like, interesting parallels. It's even interesting to sort of, like, see the differences in the filmography, right? Because Wicker Man really does kind of look like a TV movie. They do kind of interesting things with it. And then Midsummer is, like, gorgeous, I'm just thinking now about how Midsummer did feature some variation off of the newer Wicker Man's Nicolas Cage in a bear suit. That if you've seen Midsummer, <laughs> oh, that's great. There's some bear action. Yeah, and I think you know, kind of like looking at how like beautifully Midsummer is shot brings out some of the more positive. How much are you supposed to sympathize with the wacko hippies, <laughs> right? How much are you supposed to be on their side when they like? kill these awful outsiders. Looking at Midsummer, which is so beautiful, it kind of makes you see the sort of like sympathy for the pagans in Wicker Man, just as the way Wicker Man is a lot less pretty kind of makes you see the way that Midsummer is still kind of ambivalent about its pagans, even if you kind of want the outsiders to die to some degree. In both, right? I mean, they're kind of horrible, right? And you want them to die, but at the same time, you're going to like, well, maybe not. 
So it seems like one of the functions of criticism is actually this positive function, which is what you're doing right now. I actually didn't like Midsummer that much myself. <laughs> and the fact that you guys are so enthusiastic about it makes me feel like, well, maybe I should reconsider or I should, you know, that's why you would have an article to like, well, what is it exactly? Because you're just pointing out that it's a feminist commentary or something like that doesn't make me like it better. The fact that I might agree with some ideology that's in it is not sufficient, certainly, to make me like something, especially in your music writing, which seems very different than your film writing. I think, as you said, because the films are sort of assigned to you, right? They're out there. They're big media events. Somebody's got to comment on them. Whereas your music writing is, you're writing about like a Uriah Heep song, like things from 30 years ago that you're discovering or, you know, that you're sharing with the world because you love them. And that's kind of even what you were just doing with Twilight. I mean, it's also just like the particulars of who's paying me to do what at this point. You know, because a lot of my music writing is just I'm like doing it on my blog. It's unclear that anybody's reading it <laughs> on my little Patreon page. But, you know, I'm kind of doing like best albums ever because I got obsessed for whatever reason. So those are all positive, obviously. I have written, you know, negative music stuff. I wrote a, I mean, a long way back, one of my first publications was about how I hate Pearl Jam, <laughs> how they suck. So those things are out there. I definitely, you know, have written about those things. Is that still true? But I still hate Pearl Jam, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I haven't listened to them. Yeah, of... no, I feel like we're not friends. Like, like <laughs> Brian and I have had this conversation before where we've disagreed on a couple of things, and I just, I don't know, man. We just like different things. Had you heard about his famous article, 10 Musicians Influenced by Bob Dylan Who Are Better Than Bob Dylan? Oh, right, 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 right. That was craps fun. on Bob Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> I have a couple sort of Bob Dylan skeptic pieces. I mean, I actually like Bob Dylan. I just, you know. But it's overrated. Somewhat overrated. Yeah, I just, I get a bit bristly at the Bob Dylan discourse. And like Beatles, too, you know, like I wrote a thing recently about yesterday, the movie about the Beatles, which was like, what if the Beatles didn't exist? which was about how they were the best band ever. And I kind of wrote a thing about how maybe not so much <laughs> the best band ever, despite their many virtues. I don't think Dylan's going to be hurting for listeners. Right. It's different, right? Like when you're talking about, I agree with you that a lot of these people are overrated. You know, so many people love Elvis, for example, and there has got to be somebody who's like, no, come on, Elvis set music back. You know, that's fine. Even if you really, really like them, you could still say they're overrated. I take that word literally. People don't generally go and write about how they hate something unless they're forced to deal with it. And you can be forced to deal with it in various ways. Like you're like one of the blessed few who actually like have a job as a film critic and like have to go out and review stuff, review just like everything that comes down the pike. And then you see a lot of stuff that you don't like. But I mean, the other way that you might feel like you really want to like talk about how you hate something is if it's in your face all the time in a way that you're forced to sort of have an opinion of some sort because it's just like so culturally ubiquitous or, you know, ubiquitous within your own kind of subculture, right? Whatever your roommate plays at you in college. <laughs> right, right, right. Or if you're into comics, you know, you've probably got to deal with Watchmen one way or the other, which means that, you know, some people... And? I, I like Watchmen a lot. I didn't like the TV series, right. though. I mean, I like the first half of the TV series, and then there were serious problems. But yeah, I like Watchmen a lot. V for Vendetta has is more on the line. But I think that that sort of reaction is valuable, too, you know, because I think when something is so culturally ubiquitous, you know, when something is, like, impinging on people, you know, there's value in pushing back and trying to figure out, is this really something that, like, we should all have to deal with? Or, like, 
what's it saying to us that we all have to deal with? I mean, the thing about the Beatles that I talked about was actually just like the fact of their ubiquity. It kind of really creates this narrative where the idea is that meritocracy works, right? This is really the best thing, and we've figured out it's the best thing. I mean, that's what yesterday is about. It's about how even, and all of history is erased, all the specificity of like everything that like allowed the Beatles to be that popular is erased, but they're still like the best ever. We got it right. I just think art doesn't work like that. It isn't a meritocracy. Like the most successful people are not universally acclaimed. Like it doesn't necessarily work like that. And it's worth sort of like getting people to think about the fact that the Beatles' cultural position is they work super hard and they were super talented, but lots of people work super hard and are super talented and don't end up considered the best band in the world. And, you know, just thinking about like, you know, what allowed them to do that? Partially, it was like being white guys in the right place at the right time, right? Because I mean, like, R.D. Berman, that didn't happen to him because, like, he was in India making Bollywood films. And, you know, it just wasn't in the cards for him to, like, become this global superstar in the same way because there weren't those networks. And, you know, that has, says something about how we, like, even fund art making. If you think that, like, the best people are going to rise to the top anyway and be superstars, why bother with all these people who are sort of struggling below that? You don't need to help them because they, they're not the best. But if you're more willing to say, well, you know, like, this is a more subjective thing, and the people who become the most successful aren't necessarily the best, I mean, it's, there's an incentive to sort of fund people who are in the middle and who are just working artists, you know, but who are maybe making great music. Yeah, I definitely like that. Do you see that as part of your job? Uh, to help sway that, like, make us think a little bit more about, like, hey, maybe these guys aren't great, but look at these other people? I mean, you know, again, it's kind of like art. I mean, part of my job is just to, like, entertain people. Also to, you know, try to, like, make something that's aesthetically pleasing, ideally, if I can. But yeah, also to, you know, make people think about their culture and, you know, about life. That could mean, you know, trying to, like, find interesting artists who don't have a high profile and trying to get them some publicity so people can you know, listen to them or, you know, think about their work. Or it can mean, you know, thinking through, like, what artists are doing and trying to explain why I find that meaningful and like why you might find that meaningful. You know, I wrote this one book on Wonder Woman, right on the original Wonder Woman comics, which is about basically how much I love them and how they're bizarre, kinky, pacifist dream of matriarchy and how that's awesome. But yeah, then also, you know, pointing out maybe this art that we're all supposed to like and find meaning in is at least viewed from some perspective is not that great or says some things that are worth sort of like questioning. How do you separate? And this can go for all of us, I think, to think about. As we criticize things, whether it is on a more professional level or as we do it in conversation, the purpose of why we're doing it, how do we separate ourselves from, we, we've had a lot of talk about internet bullying and trolling, right? How can we make sure, or do we need to make sure that we are not being bullies and rather criticizing with the hope that it's constructive in some form or fashion? Is that important? Is that something that you try to do? Is it always important to think about maybe like what is your intention before you actually write it down? Or does entertainment take over for that? I'm interested in hearing from any of you that have an opinion on that. Can I just tell the guys why that was such a dumb question? <laughs> Go yeah, off for a yeah, second, Erica. Please. I, I got to criticize Go that. Ahead, that was just the Brian. worst. <laughs> Great question. What do you think, Erica? Where do you think the line is? Really? You're just going to ask me the question back? Yes. Yeah, because you said we're all going to answer it. So I want to hear yours first. So I have to do this a lot in my field because being an actor, you have to look at the things that you want to be a part of and consider like 
listen, most of the time I don't have the luxury to just say like, I don't really think I want to be a part of this because it's not very artistic. I'm looking at how much are they going to pay me and how long is the contract and yeah, I'll, I'll make it work. So I end up having to justify to myself a lot that things are better than they are so that I can get on board and like it and do my best in the job. Now, that being said, a few years ago, a friend said to me as I was, I had heard that some show, like some play wasn't that great. And I asked him what he thought about it. And he said, yeah, it was really good. And he's like, why shouldn't I like it? He's like, we can criticize all we want. But at the end of the day, people have taken a very long time to put this together. They put blood, sweat and tears. Yeah, I could find something wrong with it. But like, I choose to enjoy it. Now, this is a very critical person. He just wasn't spreading to me the things that he didn't like about it because he didn't think that was as important. I've thought about that a lot since. And I think especially when it has to deal with my friends, a lot of whom are actors, and criticizing their works. It's not that I'm not critical, but I try to be more careful about what I don't like about it. And usually it's probably a taste level more than anything. And I'll try to be honest about that rather than just, you know, a younger actor myself or others at a younger age might just be like, someone's is not very talented or what, you know, like, and we do it from a place of spite because we didn't get the job. So I just think it's important to ask yourself, like, why are you being critical of it? Are you actually doing it because you're trying to find something useful with the criticism? Or is it coming from some sort of anger or spite that you have that you weren't involved in it somehow? Yeah, it does seem like with the American Idol and things like that, you know, we've all become armchair judges of these ridiculously talented people. But like, maybe this one was a little fluttery on the note, was a little pitchy dog as compared to the other person. And so we're taking this position that we have no right if you're going to say, well, let's see you do it. You know, (laughs) you know, it's like we've all become the Olympic judges or something that somehow have these years of experience. So I guess that's, that's how I'm interpreting your question. Is this an okay thing to indulge in, to feel good about? Or is this part of, you know, something that should itself be subject to critical scrutiny? I think it's not that hard to have a compass on whether you're punching up or punching down, right? And there are people who we talk about on this podcast who, if they were to listen, which they probably aren't, would not care what we're saying about them, right? Nor should they. And, right, there's the term constructive criticism. I mean, it exists for a reason, right? And if you're dealing with a novice who really wants help, that's what you do with constructive criticism. You keep it positive, specific, and actionable. And there's really a lot of thought that goes into providing guidance versus, well, you're not punching at all, really. You're hopefully truly are being constructive in that context. For, yeah, whatever I was saying about the Irishman, Marty called me and he was crying and he was so upset. Brian, I can't believe you said, like, I, buddy, I just call it the way I see it. You said Brad Pitt wasn't a great actor, didn't you, Brian? <laughs> I stand by it and don't even, well, I'll get back to Brad later on that too. So there's a series on AV Club called Hate Song, right? And it's all these different people in different walks of life. They're interviewed and they talk about a song that they hate that's really popular. In most cases, the people who made that song, you know, made total bank on it. And the fact that some comedian or some actor on a TV show didn't like their song, you know, how could they possibly care about that? But I want to know, Noah, have you ever been contacted by someone (laughs) who you... You didn't like my album. (laughs) I've been contacted by, yeah, I mean, artists show up occasionally, mostly positive. Yeah, when I had my comics blog, I'd sometimes have comic book artists who were pissed at me for saying they sucked. The book I was talking about where they made the Coke bottle and art was Gwyneth Jones's White Queen series, which is amazing. So I just wanted to 
feel like I left her out. Anyway, to what you were saying about, you know, not wanting to come from a place of anger or spite. I think anger and spite are like fine critical emotions. And there's lots of great criticism. Again, like Mark Twain was like pretty angry and spiteful. And it's awesome. You just have to be ready for those consequences if they come at you, I guess, right? Yeah. I mean, I think the thing is that, you know, I mean, like, there's just a lot in the world to be, like, pretty angry about. Like Schindler's List. I hate Schindler's List. Like, it really, really makes me angry. I'm just sick of seeing, like, Gentile saviors and, like, heroic Nazis and having Jewish people be these little people off to the side who need to be told how to deal with fascism. Like, I just makes me sick and I hate it. And I think that's pretty reasonable. You know, sometimes the culture tells you things and you should be mad at them. You know, they're bad things. They're trying to hurt you. They're trying to make the world worse. And it's okay to be angry at that and say you're angry at it. Obviously, like Steven Spielberg is fantastically wealthy and acclaimed. And, you know, there's nothing I can do to him that's actually going to like make him come after me. There isn't a problem in saying, you know, I hate that movie and it's evil. He doesn't need to do that himself. Right. I mean, you know, I have, you know, sort of been very angry and written angrily about stuff by people who are much less powerful. And, you know, I think that if you make art and you put it out there, people have the right to react to the art. Now, tagging people on Twitter when you're like talking about how you hated their thing, like that's crappy. They don't need to see that. That's interesting that you say that because that seems very linked to me because what's the difference in somebody taking a quote out of an article that you said something negative about them and putting that on Twitter as opposed to a, a tweet? Well, I mean, it's the difference between like emailing somebody to like scream at them and like writing a review. People expect reviews, like people expect you to talk about it. They don't expect you to necessarily like, you know, hunt them down and like, you know, yell at them. Yeah. Like if somebody's like, you know, asking, what do you think of this? How can I improve it? That's a big difference than this is a finished piece and you're writing a critical article to me. Yeah. You make distinctions depending on the, you know, sort of like what the venue is. And I do a lot of music profiles for document journal now at the moment. And I sometimes write for Bandcamp. And those are both places where, you know, I mean, it's pretty explicitly the case that, you know, they're interested in you finding things that people would like and that you'd like, you know, I mean, they're not interested in, Finding a random heavy metal song and you hate heavy metal and shitting on it. Yeah. <laughs> right. So if you find something that you don't like, you just say, well, I don't like that. I'm not going to write about it. And in fact, I mean, often like the editor, I mean, the editors do that too. Like if they don't like it, they'll just be like, well, we're not going to cover this. That happens a lot. And that's why there's actually like, I mean, there's a lot more positive criticism out there. If you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all. Right. And that's, I mean, that's monetized, you know, I mean, like people only want to read about you hating something if they kind of don't know what it is or if they know what it is. I mean, they don't much want you to sort of like, here's this obscure musician. Here's why you shouldn't listen to them. Nobody wants that. Can I just tell you as sort of my closing here, a terrible story that happened to me earlier in my musical career and my first real CD I'd put out and I took it to my place of work and gave it to one of my coworkers and his friend put a review of it up on his blog. This is like the year 2000 completely trashing it. He, he hated it. <laughs> and I felt like, I didn't give this to you for review. That wasn't even like, <laughs> there's probably only five copies of this circulating out there and you felt the need to put something, I know you've never heard of this, but it really sucks. And here's the guy's name. <laughs> oh, no. No, so, that's just me. I've never gotten over that. <laughs> but no press is bad press, I guess. 
Did you sell any? Not based on that. <laughs> I'm sure nobody was reading his <laughs> shitty blog either. I think that was the whole irony of the minnows in their politics. Let's say it that way. Right. The enemy of the artist is not criticism and negative reviews. The real enemy is obscurity. I think that is true across however you're creating your art. So, Mark, you should have taken it as a compliment that that person thought it was worth (laughs) ravaging. So that's good on you. I might have bought a copy of that CD, or you might have just given me one. I don't know. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Noah, for joining us. And I'm sure we'll circle back to this idea and look forward to adding your voice in absentia to our (laughs) thoughts about media in the future. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks so much. Thank you, Noah. Before we wrap up, I'm going to insert a little bit that we recorded after our guest departed. It was supposed to be part of the supporter-only content, but you get to hear it now. You can, of course, hear the rest of the supporter-only content at patreon.com slash pretty much pop. Maybe it'd be helpful. So I, in putting notes together for this, I came up with a typology of critic. So I came up with four categories. Of course, these overlap and people can do more than one of them, but the supporter... Right. I just want to share my love of things I've discovered. That is exactly what I do on the Nakedly Exam Music Podcast. As he said, I don't pick anything that I'm not reasonably excited about. And even if I'm not that excited about it when I start, I'll like listen to it enough that I can really engage with it. And I can't say I love every song that I've covered on there, but it's about trying to let that person display like, here's what I was after. You know, and you can kind of live it with them, even if the product did not. In fact, I used to have the third song, pick a failure, pick something that didn't work well. Listeners didn't like that idea. <laughs> and the artists didn't like that idea since they're only showing off three songs anyway. They don't want to show a, a crappy song as the third one. But like the idea was, I want you to identify with this person as a creator. I've mapped all of these four types of yours to different houses in Hogwarts. So these are the Hufflepuffs. Continue. Okay. And then the decoder. Right. I'm not telling you about what to like, what not to like, but I want you to understand the cultural significance of things. So a lot of the, what I like about Noah's writing is when he's decoding. He really sees his work as little kind of works of philosophy. You're learning something. I should have even maybe divided this because there's that synthesis that he was talking about. Like I could just try to compare things that are completely from different realms as an interesting experience into itself. I'm creating a piece of art by writing a piece of criticism. What I normally meant, you know, a decoder is like telling you, what are the historical precedents of this? What is the context of this? It lets you appreciate the work by actually understanding like where it's coming from without necessarily being a supporter. It also lets you divorce yourself emotionally from disagreement with that person, Mm -hmm. right? Because, okay, you didn't like it and I did, but that's not really what we're talking about. Right. Yeah. So maybe that's what we do on this podcast a lot of the time. We don't get that personal, even if we feel strongly differently about something because we're stupid <laughs> right. uh, and then the, the, the third yeah these are just jumping out at us right on to the next one the taste enforcer i have a discerning eye i want to share that with you there's quality that you're overlooking in the sea of mediocrity that's actually what captured noah's article on why negative criticism is valuable it was called why hate it's easy to dismiss those people as snooty critics I think that can actually be very helpful to have a taste enforcer because it it is somebody who hopefully has a good deal of experience in a particular subject. And so I may think something is really awesome, but then once they explain to me, well, actually, this has been done in this other thing. Like, for example, all the people who love Joker and then they were told that, oh, actually, it was kind of a ripoff of these other better films. And I think there's definitely some significance to that. It works when it works, but man, people can really come off as tools, insufferable (laughs) 
So this is Slytherin. Oh no, that, sorry, number four is Slytherin. Oh no, I, I this think this is Slytherin. Okay, and then the last one was just haters. I enjoy pointing out absurdity and will actively seek out bad things to rip on, which I also see a lot of that in Noah. And I don't entirely, like, I really enjoy, we've talked before about bad film podcasts and Rift Tracks, Mystery Science Theater, that kind of stuff, where you're actually taking joy in being snarky. Being snarky is fun. Right. There's a reason that Cinema Sins has 8 million followers and Cinema Wins has 1 million followers, right? I mean, it's way more fun to hear everything wrong about the movie that you just saw, a movie that you've loved all your life. And it's there's a, a little thrill to it. It's a guilty pleasure. YouTube, yeah, YouTube em- empires are built on it. And that's fine, considering how many fights those Gryffindor were getting in every movie and seeking out the bad. <laughs> I, I just figured these were the haters. I just know if I were in Hogwarts, I, I would be a Hufflepuff and I just wouldn't like the Gryffindors. That's all there is. <laughs> Maybe she needs to do a spinoff book, just like this apparent spinoff book from Twilight, and take a Hufflepuff character and write a <laughs> how the Gryffindors are a bunch of assholes by comparison. I'm a Hufflepuff, too. I don't know what I am. I've never taken that quiz. I'm a Miranda. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what the sorting hat told you? <laughs> so long, listeners. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life Podcast Network, and it's also presented by openculture.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.